Hey guys, I'm Esther, owner of Sarah Design. And I'm Jen, owner of Hello June Creative. Welcome to Better, the brand designer podcast. We're all about broadcasting conversations that support our design community and covering industry secrets and offering actionable advice. Just remember, the only designer you need to be better than is the one you were yesterday. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Better the Brand Designer podcast. We are so excited to be hitting your inbox today on Tuesday. This is our very, very last episode of the season. I know. I can't believe it. I was looking back today at like all the episodes in season five and I was like, wait, when you do weekly episodes, you have really big seasons. (laughs) Yeah. 25 episodes this season. That is wild to me. I know. Or 26, actually. This is 26. I guess this is, yeah. That's just, that's nuts. Um, Thanks for listening, guys. I mean, like, Losing Giselle last year and like not knowing what was going to happen with the podcast, but knowing like deep down that like I know that she would want it continued and like I wanted to continue doing it. Like being able to look back at all of the guests that we interviewed and just all of the amazing conversations that me and Esther have had together and conversations with you guys as well in the Facebook group, one to one and DMs. Like this has gone even further beyond what I ever could have imagined, especially after such a tragedy last year. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact that Giselle is looking down. Inbox question episodes were her favorites. And I know that she would be so proud of us. And that just, that means the world to me. So thank you guys on both of our behalfs for for sticking with us during season five. Yeah. And also, I just want to say thank you guys for welcoming me into the better family this season. I know this is my first season and I just feel so loved by you guys. And I just want to foster this community more. And I'm so, so honored to be a part of it. And yeah, so here's to the end of the season and we'll be back for the next four weeks. We're going to have some reruns and Jen and I are going to do a little intro for each of those reruns, but they're going to be episodes from previous seasons that we really loved. And then during that time, Jen's actually taking vacation Woohoo. and then we're going to come back. Yeah. So we're going to be coming back, I believe at the beginning of August. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at the beginning of August, we're going to be coming, coming in hot with season six and we already have some incredible guests on the books for season six. We have a whole notion document list full of episode ideas if there's anything that you guys want to hear from, like if there you have a great episode idea for us, we are always looking for better ways to serve you guys. And you know, this podcast is about you and what you guys want to listen to. So if you have a good idea, or even if you're not sure if it's a good idea, feel free to shoot us a DM on Instagram, pop us a message um, on Facebook, send us an email to inbox at betterbranddesigner.com. We would love to hear from you guys, even if it's just a little bit of feedback. And also while we're gone, the Facebook group is still going. Everything is still going to be going as normal. I'll be in there even while Jen's on vacation. But also just want to like remind you guys that that is such a great way to connect with people. It's completely free. And we have so many amazing people in our Facebook group who want to support each other, who ask questions. And it's really just a great way to build your designer community. So join us in there. It's facebook.com backslash better brand designer. Yes. And if you guys have loved season five, if you're a new listener and this is like the first episode you're listening to, if you're an old listener, we would really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts. 
I believe now it's as easy as picking your star rating. I don't even think you need to leave like a comment, but if you want to, if you feel called to leave a comment, but please do, we love reading them. Please do. Yes. We love reading them. We read every single one of them. It really, really helps our podcast grow. It helps new designers be able to find us, start listening to our content. And that all starts with you guys and you know the impact that this podcast has had on your lives and businesses, whether that's big or small. So big thank you to anyone who's already submitted a review. And if you could take a couple minutes out of your day to leave us a review, we would just so appreciate that. Yeah. Also, just like just because I feel like I want to say this... If you leave a review, it's not to boost our egos. Like, honestly, it's really not. Like, we could not care less. I mean, we do care about the rating because we want you guys to, like, think that this is valuable. But really, it is to connect with more people and help get our podcast in the ears of new designers who need a little bit of guidance or want some support. Yeah. A hundred percent. Also, we have our Patreon. We actually just completed our first quarterly patron Q&A call. It's a small group right now. So if you join our Patreon, um, our next one is going to be in Q3. Our next um, quarterly patron call will be in Q3. It's still a small group. So that's just a really great, valuable way to have some you know, small group time with us. And um, there are some cute sticker sheets that we're going to be sending out to new patrons. We've got some um, enamel pins in the works, which is super exciting. So if you're looking for a little bit of merch, you want to just maybe contribute a little bit, kind of think of it as a little tip jar for our podcast. Um, it would mean a lot to us to continue being able to put out weekly episodes for your guys completely free. And then also kind of start to foster a little bit of a Patreon community where you can interact with you guys um, on a more like one-to-one level. Yeah. Thank you guys for, if you are already a Patreon, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And yeah, we just want to keep doing this for you guys. We love you. 100%. We love you. Big hug. Love fest moment. (laughs) Thank you for listening to season five. I don't know about you guys, but Jen and I are seriously self-proclaimed course junkies. And we are super excited to tell you about a brand new course called Shopify Codex. It's a first-of-its-kind Shopify process and development course created by one of our favorite people in the world, Leia Gucciardi from Arc Design Studio. Keep listening because we have an exclusive listener discount for you. So we know that you guys always want to serve your clients the best that you can because me and Esther feel the exact same way. And with e-commerce development, particularly in Shopify, I feel like it's such an in-demand service and they tend to sell for higher ticket prices as well. But do you guys feel like there's such a huge learning curve on Shopify? Because I know I do. And I will be the first one to admit that I have struggled with feeling super limited and boxed in Shopify themes. And I know that I am not the only one who feels this way. Maybe you also don't know how to price or confidently deliver a high-end client experience when you're learning a brand new platform and it feels a little uncomfortable. Totally. And that's why we are so, so excited about Shopify Codex. I have personally seen inside the course and you guys... Leia has gone above and beyond to create a resource that is chock full of so much knowledge that will honestly blow your mind. The course will teach you how to use Shopify's programming language, which is called Liquid, and that will propel your coding skills and help you design beyond the limitations of Shopify's pre-made themes. It also has a massive wiki of resources that over delivers on video trainings on coding skills, templates, how to scope, price sites, book high ticket clients, and break beyond the cookie cutter templates. 
People who have gone through Leia's program have said that more than just being able to book higher ticket projects, which is super nice, they have left with so much confidence in offering a high level, super customizable Shopify experience for their clients. They've also been able to make back the investment, which is insane, of the course by just selling one Shopify VIP day, which of course Leia teaches from process to pricing to pitching to your clients. I'm gonna be in the course too. So join me in stepping into this new world of Shopify. There is so much to learn and Leia does such a good job of teaching us. And I am so ready to ditch cookie cutter templates and stop boxing in my web design dreams without that burnout of learning it all on my own and just being thrown into the fire. I'm so glad that I get a helping hand and all of you guys. So seriously, you do not want to miss out on this. Head over to shopifycodex.com slash better and use the code better at checkout to get $300 off. I'll see you guys in there. Today, we are going to answer your inbox questions. We have a lot of questions that you guys have submitted. So thank you for every single question that has come through. There's too many to answer every single one, but we've picked a selection that we feel like are going to be valuable for everybody. Yes. So we're not going to be doing an intro question. Obviously, the whole episode will be inbox questions. So we're just going to kind of go back and forth. We're going to get through as many as we possibly can. I love Q&A episodes. So this is one of my favorite episodes to record. This is Esther's first inbox questions episode. So um, Yeah. And I'm so excited. I feel like there's so many things. I love like... Because when we record normal episodes, we basically talk about one topic. Yeah. And I'm so excited to just be like, kind of bouncing around. Oh, everything's on the table here. We're going to be covering mindset, business, everything. So let's just dive in. Yeah. Okay. And also you guys, just so you know, we're going to be doing it like back and forth. So Jen will ask one, I'll ask one and yeah, it'll be great. Perfect. Let's go. All right, guys. The first question is from Natalie Trinidad. The question is, what has helped you gain more higher paying brand design clients? Such a great one to start off with. I think this is the top question that we get asked. I think the first thing is positioning. And I say positioning instead of niching because I feel like niching is usually associated with industries and picking one specific industry niche that like real estate agents or interior designers or makers or whatever. I know a lot of designers who have been very successful by picking an industry niche and focusing on marketing to and connecting with those particular types of clients. It's also great for referral-based businesses because typically people tend to fall into the same industries. Um, When I talk about positioning, I feel like that means a little bit more drawing out your special sauce, thinking about your unique offer and how you and your business are different from the other brand designers out there. I know it can feel like, oh, the industry is saturated. There's so many brand designers. There's already someone out there doing what we're doing. It's like, yes, that's the reason why you know there is a whole podcast about this. So it's not a bad thing that there are other people out there doing what you do. I think gaining higher paying clients is just all about identifying the type of people that you want to be working with. Start positioning yourself using your website copy, using your own branding, using your marketing, using the way that you show up on social media to speak directly to those higher paying clients, creating content around topics that are going to be attractive to 
clients who are a little further on in their businesses, maybe not creating content for people who are just starting out. If you are wanting to attract people who have those higher four or five figure budgets for projects, but then also remembering that higher paying projects aren't always the most profitable. Sometimes you can create really profitable offers from people who are just starting out, who do have smaller budgets, day rates, intensives, things like that. So I do think that like our industry is seeing a shift from, you know, only like, oh, it's not legit unless it's a 10K project or like you need to be charging 15K for web to is it profitable? What are you making in your net revenue? And are you serving the type of person that you want to be serving? So that was kind of a little condensed answer to a much more complicated question. This would be a great episode in of itself, but just because this one is a little more complex, Esther, did you have anything you wanted to throw in there? Yeah. I was going to say to your question, Natalie, how do you get higher paying clients? I think it's asking for the price as well. So you go into a call and even if you maybe aren't feeling like, oh, I'm not sure if they can actually afford this, like saying the price that you want, because there's no way you're going to get that high price unless you ask for it. But again, to Jen's point, it really just depends on like what the actual deliverables are. So there's a lot of different things that go into that, but asking for what you want is a huge step too. Our next question is from Charlotte Grimshaw. How do you know when you have found the right design and to end development phases? So I'm assuming that she's talking about like, you know, when you're doing concept development or designing the website, how do you know once you've hit the the end? Well, so I think that it really is how the client perceives it and how it's going to really target their audience. So once you're able to say, yes, that this hits exactly what our pillars are trying to hit, this hits the values, this portrays the right thing. And I know that's kind of like arbitrary and really hard to quantify whether or not it's done. I think it's, it's more about how the client sees it. I also think it's important to recognize that no design is ever actually finished. You could always make things better and you could be tweaking little things for the rest of eternity. And it has to just be at a point where you say, this is great. This is hitting the target for now. And maybe later on, it's going to change. But right now, this is where it needs to end. Okay. Question from Josh Hodgson. Where do you start? I've been a graphic designer for 10 years, but really want to zone in on brand design as when I get to do it. I absolutely love it, but I have no idea where to start. I love this question because I remember that feeling, that feeling of overwhelm, of not really knowing what is the right first step. Um, I do suggest listening to an episode that we recorded earlier in the season called uh, Advice to Our Younger Selves. There's a lot of mindset work that we kind of talk about in that episode. I think that that would be really helpful to listen to. But I mean, aside from like setting up your LLC and getting your books in order and, you know, building your website, I think the first thing that I would suggest is to decide what type of style of design or, you know, just decide like what you want to, like who you want to work with, you know, like, Again, it goes back to that positioning. You don't need to choose a positioning and get married to it in the beginning. It's a little bit easier to keep it a little bit more fluid, but like you're going to enjoy your business so much more 
You're going to create better designs. Your clients are going to obsess over you if you also are enjoying what you're doing. So maybe that means working with brands that have more of a corporate feel. Maybe that works means working with brands that are more masculine. That's definitely, I feel like, a, a huge hole in the independent brand design industry. I don't see a ton of that, at least on Instagram. But like, pick what you like, pursue that, do some conceptual projects, show them to some friends, maybe you know, do a logo for your brother or someone that you know, just to like get started and figuring out the process, decide what you like, what you don't like. But I mean, it really goes back to you know, start out with projects that you really enjoy doing and identify some of the the clients that you want to work with. I agree. I love that. That was well said. Our next question is from Rachel Haley. What's the most important skill you should have to be a brand designer? Oh, this one's hard because there are so many skills that you could include in this list. But I would say my number one thing is curiosity. I think that being curious about your surroundings, being curious about learning and trying new things and also being willing to fail because that's really at the end of the day, we are all in business and you want to continue to learn and try different things. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but you get back on and you try something else. Really being curious about how your client is going to perceive things, how their customer is going to perceive things, being really a student of not just life itself, but also consumerism and marketing and different skill sets and learning new trends and learning new platforms and software. Really, I guess curiosity and learning go hand in hand then. I was going to say learning. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, there's two aspects, but it's all coming down to the same thing of like wanting to grow and be better. I think it could be easy to say, oh, like as a brand designer, you just need to be creative. But I really don't think that's true. There are so many people who are self-taught designers who teach themselves how to be creative and teach themselves how to be good designers because they are curious and they want to learn. Katie Couch asks, where do you learn about offboarding files for client work and what are some ways to keep it all organized? Such a good question, Katie. Yeah, this is a great one. I feel like we just never talk about this stuff. Like what happens after the brand is approved? As far as where where to learn about offboarding files, like I'm sure like just YouTube videos would be a great place to start. Like how to organize brand design files or something like that. I always recommend branding with Brie. Um, as a course for new brand designers. I think I have a code, gift from Jen, might still work. So you guys can try that out. But in that course, she has a module all about how she sets up her file system within her own computer for organizing client files. The way that I um, organize like the delivery files that I give to clients is I have one folder called a brand identity package. Within that folder, I have a folder for the style guide. I have a folder for all of the logos and then subfolders within that folder for each of the logo variations. Within each of those variation folders, then I have color variants. And then with each of those color variant folders, I have about five different file formats that I provide all my clients. JPEG, PNG, PDF, AI, and SVG are typically the file formats that I give. I actually don't divide out on like web size versus print size. I just educate my clients about which type of file they should be using for each different, you know, 
application in the wild. Um, I also have folders for the mood board, for the brand strategy, for the color palette, which are just pages that I've kind of taken out of the style guide and saved as individual PDFs. And then I also have a folder for social graphics and mock-ups. So any mock-ups I've created throughout the process and then also new mock-ups I make at the end, I put in the folder of the brand identity package so that the client can use those to market and advertise. If there were other elements of the brand process, like additional collateral pieces, there'll be individual folders for those. And I just send the link to the Dropbox folder to my client via email. That's how I do it. How about you, Esther? It's basically the same thing for me, the way I organize except I do it on Google Drive. Yeah. There's a lot of things that go into it, but really I've seen the end offboarding files as just really a dump of everything. Like include every single thing that they could use in the future. Just organize it out so that it's easy for them to access. Yes. And I do think educating them around how to use the folder too. I've been thinking about creating like a little Loom video and sending that along with the brand identity package with me like literally walking them through every single folder, especially with uh, with colors. I feel like a lot of clients struggle with that and then also fonts, purchasing their fonts. So I might like make like a little like, I don't know, general Loom video to that I can send with every single brand package that's like, here's how to purchase your fonts. This is where to find the links because I put it in the style guide, but sometimes yeah. I don't know where it is. So I feel like that will help. I actually do that. Oh, okay. Perfect. I do include a Loom video and it's really helpful. I do one each for each client so that it's dedicated specifically to them because some clients have icons, some don't, whatever. Like mm-hmm. there's like some variations and usually it's pretty quick, like five minutes. So I, I feel like that's really valuable because that way they're not coming back to you with a bunch of questions two months down the road and they just have everything that they need and they can always refer back to that video. So smart. I'm going to have to start doing that. Our next question is from Meher Joe Core. I know everyone has their own unique way of reaching revenue goals. So I'd love to hear some strategies that you've used in your businesses that have helped you scale to six figures. Okay, this is a very jam-packed question. So in a short amount of time, I'm going to try to dig into a lot of it. So we talked about this a little bit on the, the question about higher paying clients. And I think it's really important to know that there are so many different ways to reach your revenue goals. It's not necessarily about charging a super high price, but it could be about getting a bunch of little smaller projects and really capitalizing on what's the equivalent of money versus time. How quickly are you able to do projects? How much effort is this going to be to put in? And I also think that it's not always important to think about that six-figure income. And I know like, Meher, you're asking about this. So maybe this is something you're curious about, but I do want to give it out for our listeners that That doesn't need to be a benchmark for every single person. It really depends on where you're at in your life and the cost of living where you're at. And so many different things contribute to that. But for me, when it comes to revenue, it really comes down to what do I feel like I want and need in a certain month? And how does that then add up over the course of a year? So if I am looking to hit six figures, so 100K in a year, divide that by 12, and then you can see around where you want to go per month, or you can go to quarterly and be able to see it that way. I think by cutting it down and being able to look at it in small chunks 
is a good way of projecting where you want your revenue to be. And then also you can then base how much you want per month or per quarter and be able to calculate what does my average project need to be in order to hit that goal. Couldn't have said it better myself. I think thinking about the salary that you'd like to have ideally for the amount of work that you're doing, also taking into account the fact that you want to probably bonus yourself something at the end of the year is a great way to start. And then to build off of that, typically the breakdown that I follow is uh, based off of the book Profit First. So 50% of my gross revenue goes to owner's compensation, meaning my salary and any bonuses. 15% of the gross gets set aside for taxes. 5% goes to profit, which is a separate special place for a rainy day or to pull from um, for additional owner's compensation, but technically profit should be set aside separately. And then a whopping 30% goes to operating expenses for the business. Um, So hopefully I said all those numbers correctly, but I feel like starting with the compensation that you want and then maybe kind of reverse engineering some of those percentages will help you determine what the revenue goal you actually want is going to be. I know that that's a little bit different than the question that you asked, but I just thought I would throw that in there. Yeah. And I think too, like factoring in the cost of living, right? Like how much do you actually need to pay your bills? And then anything beyond that is what goes into your business. Amanda DeWoody asks, what is your favorite digital design tool and also your favorite physical slash tangible design tool? Oh, this is so good. Esther, you should answer this one too, because I'm actually curious. Um, Digital design tool, I'm going to be boring and just say show it because show it like absolutely revolutionized the way that I like deliver web design to my clients, Um, especially because you guys know I'm kind of allergic to code. I will hire developers all day, but it's not something that I absolutely love doing, whereas I know Esther does love it. Moving from Squarespace slash Webflow into show it really allowed me to have a lot more control over the mobile versions of the websites that I was doing. And also helped me create a lot of semi-custom web offers that allowed me to still deliver amazing web experiences for my clients in a lot shorter timelines with um, especially for people who had a little bit lower budgets than you know maybe they didn't need a fully custom website. So show it's definitely my favorite digital design tool. If we're thinking about Illustrator tools, ooh, I would probably have to pick the Pathfinder tool in Illustrator where oh, you can yes. overlap shapes and then you can like do so crazy fun. funky stuff with them. So love Pathfinder. There's so much. I would if I have a specific outcome in mind with Illustrator and I'm using the Pathfinder tool. Sometimes I don't know exactly which one I want, and I'll just try all of them until it gets the result that I want. So maybe I need to educate myself a little bit more about all the different Pathfinder like options and what they're called. But I love that. And then for physical design tools, probably my Pantone color books. I don't have the bridge, but I have coded and uncoded. First off, they're just beautiful. They're kind of expensive too. I think it was like over $100 for each one. But I love being able to look at color in person next to a window with real light. And I feel like that helps me not just kind of get sucked into the RGB space when I'm picking colors for brands, but also helps me determine like how is this color actually going to be printed in real life. Um, I don't do a ton of print work, but I want to set up my brand design clients for print work. So that's probably what I would say. How about you? Mm, it's so hard to choose. My favorite digital design tool, I would say, is Adobe XD. And I've been transitioning a lot of my stuff away from Illustrator, away from InDesign. Like I used to do my presentations in InDesign. And now I do my presentations in XD because that's what I'm using to 
get my websites ready and create wireframes. So might as well just use it for everything. And it's really easy to just share links to presentations for my clients. And it's been super easy for me. It's also just, I feel very intuitive and I love it. I love it. I can even do shapes and stuff like that in XD. And then my favorite physical design tool would honestly be have, have to be my micro pen and just good old paper. Like I love... Ooh, oh, I was going to say, what's a micro pen? But you said micron. <laughs> yes, micron, <laughs> micron pen. Yeah, I love the way that it feels on paper and the like the look of the lines. It's perfect. I actually used to draw with micron pens like when I was really young, I used to draw a lot and color a lot in color book, coloring books and stuff. And I have sketchbooks and sketchbooks full of like little drawings that I used to make with my, I don't remember the brand, but they're like tan and they like, I don't know, they have like the teeniest, tiniest, they go so small, like the little pen nibs. Like, I don't know. I love yeah, micron these. Pens, but yeah. What brand is that? It's Micron. Oh, it, literally that's the brand. I'm pretty sure. Oh, well, this one type says- of pen. This one says Pigma, so maybe that's the brand. Oh. But it it's is these. Like, it makes me feel like an artist when I'm using like cool art tools like that. Like I could go into a Hobby Lobby and do some serious damage. Yes. Also, you guys, I'm like holding up this pen as if you guys can see it. But I know. <laughs> it's a tan one. Yeah. Tiffany Chang asks, what is one important thing you wish you knew as a new designer? I wish that I knew it's okay to change your process a million and one times. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to have it right when you first start and you are going to change it. It's going to evolve as you grow. I know Jen and I have talked about things that we learned a year ago versus even like three years ago and our processes are completely different. So even your brand strategy processes, maybe even the way that you have exported logos. I don't know. Like there's so many different things that are going to evolve and that's normal and totally okay. I felt like when I first started, I had to like know exactly what I was doing and the way that I talked to my clients was going to be the way that I talked to them forever. And let me tell you, no, it's not true. Erin Barron asks, as a designer, when you're finished with a brand strategy session with your client, how do you take the information from the brand strategy and apply it to the actual concept or design? I love this question. I would refer you to a recent episode. I think it's just a couple episodes ago um, about using intuition in your design process with Alex McGinnis. That episode was really cool to talk about kind of that bridge between the world of words and strategy and then how to apply that to font selection, color selection, diving into your artboards and creating a design. Like, what does playful mean? What does serious mean? What does modern mean? What does timeless mean? So I think that, you know, getting really comfortable with your intuition, whether that's through silence while you're driving and just letting your thoughts kind of run wild, whether that's through meditation. We talk about a lot of that stuff in that episode, but I think also getting really clear with your client and with yourself about what certain words in the strategy really mean to them. Asking them for examples of brands that they love has been really helpful for me in determining, okay, what does clean mean to you? Maybe clean means a really you know timeless serif typeface that does not have a lot of space to one client, but then another client could think that clean means sans serif, 
really, really, really spaced out all caps, you know? So I think um, just continuing to dive into some of those descriptor words, pushing back a little bit, making sure you're spending enough time in the strategy phase of the project and having a really good sit-down call or if you you don't do a call, really in-depth questionnaire with your client so that you really understand the direction that they're hoping to go and the direction that you think is going to be best for their brand. Other than that, as far as setting it up, this has been something that I've done that's been really helpful is I create my exploration document. The brand strategy has been approved. I create an exploration document. I put the mood board on there and then I put any relevant information from the brand strategy, like visual brand descriptors, kind of like the words I was just talking about. I put any inspiration pieces that are you know relevant that I include in the brand strategy. Um, I put the color palette because I do the color palette and mood board prior to exploration. And then any typefaces that I've um, kind of done research on, I drop those onto the document. So rather than staring at a completely blank screen, I have bits and pieces from the brand strategy that I feel are relevant to the design portion. So it feels less like, oh my goodness, like what do I design? And we're like, okay, we have an approved direction. This is what I'm going to build off of and explore from. Alex McDowell asks, there are so many industries out there to tap into. As a new designer trying to find their fit, how can I find what works best for me when there's so many options? Alexis, you are so right. There are a million different industries that you could tap into. My biggest piece of advice for you is to really think about what lights you up. What do you find joy in? What types of brands are you spending most of your day around? I know for Jen specifically, who has a kid, like she might be spending a lot of time around kid toys and like looking at blogs that are related to children and parenthood. And so that could be an industry to tap in if that's where you're at. For me, I love plants. Like that could be a space to tap into because that way you're able to speak the same language as your client and it's giving you energy. So because you're energized about the particular industry, you'll be able to create really, really good content for them. There's also another way to find your fit. And this is actually what I've done in my business in Serif Design is I don't have a particular industry that I tap into, but I tap into values. So for me, I want to work with clients who are making a difference in the world. So it could be related to sustainability. It could be related to education. It could be related to mental health or the arts. It really could be anything that I feel like relates to how I see the world and how I want to share my skill set with the world. And that may not be where you're at, but that's where I am. So maybe just to give you a different way to look at it is it doesn't have to be, oh, I only work with real estate agents or I only work with interior designers, or I only work with jewelry companies. Like you, you could do that if that is what genuinely lights you up and gives you joy. Absolutely do that. But there are so many different ways to look at it too. So yeah, at the end of the day, just think about your story. Think about who you are and how to connect with other people. Amanda Gasario asks, do you think it's more important to have a signature style or to be adaptable to what's appropriate to the client's business? I am obsessed with this question and I have thought about this in the past. As a designer whose positioning is very heavily focused around the style that I work in, which is, I've called it colorful minimalism. I didn't invent that. 
but it is something that my clients ask for. And they tell me repeatedly when they reach out, I was attracted to your specific style and I want that style for my brand. It doesn't have to be an either or. I think that it's okay to have a signature style, but also you can have a strategic brand. You can go through the strategy process. Even though I have a signature style, if you look at all of the brands that I've designed next to each other, yes, you can tell that they came from a similar designer or someone who has the same just taste and design as me. But every single design decision I've made for a brand, I can rationalize through the strategy portion of the project. And so I think that make sure that you just have a really sound strategy phase. And I think that it is totally okay to have a signature style. I think it's also okay not to have a signature style at all. Giselle did not have a signature style. You could tell that she had incredible design skills, but she definitely focused more on bringing the strategy through. And she was really, really okay with experimenting with lots of different styles, lots of different fonts and colors. And she did a design for a bakery and it was so bright and pop pink and and white. And it looked like something that I would have designed. And then she's done stuff for nonprofits that are a little bit more serious um, and a little bit less colorful and more earthy. So I don't think that one or the other is more important. If anything, I think that being strategic and being able to rationalize your design decision is the most important part. Alouette Marsh asks, I'm all about balance. What is your best piece of advice when it comes to feeling balanced whilst running your business? Boundaries, 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 boundaries. I really feel like that is the way to have a good balance between your personal life and your professional life. Setting the exact times that you want to work whether it's in the morning or at night, it, like it really matters what you feel like you need, but honoring those boundaries and honoring what you actually need, whether you need time for your mental health, do you need a day off of work a week? Do you have children? Do you have other responsibilities that you care about? Really having the time set aside for it and not overexerting yourself on one or the other, I think is the best way to have balance while you're running a business and also recognizing when you need help. I think that's huge. We often as business owners feel like we need to just do everything. But if you really want to have those boundaries and create that balance, when you are struggling and when you're feeling like you're maybe drowning, asking for help, outsourcing, I feel like that's what really can help you keep the balance and move forward in a way that is healthy and still going to be energizing. The last thing I want for you is to burn out. And I know I've been there. Jen's been there. We've all been there. It's super easy to burn out, especially while you're trying to figure things out. And having the balance and the boundaries allows you to not have to worry about that as much. And that's not to say you're never going to screw up. There is always going to be times where you feel like unbalanced and really just check back in with yourself and say like, where do I need to create more of the boundaries? Where do I need to really focus on what are my needs as a human being before my needs as a business owner? That's really important. Annie Jiang asks, how strict should brand guidelines be? I think as strict as you want to make them. That's my answer to, I feel like every question is like, okay, well, how far do you want to go? Um, It depends on who you're branding too. Like, are you branding like 
a mom and pop restaurant down the street that's not really going to have more brand applications than their menu and some signage and some marketing on social media? Or are you branding like a Fortune 500 company, which if you are, like you go girl. I do know that Kourtney Kardashian hired an independent brand design studio to design the branding and I believe the website for her wellness brand, Poosh. So it, it happens. It could happen. I feel like a brand like that might need more strict and just more like built out brand guidelines than a really, really, really small company. Um, I'm thinking about like use cases, like ways not to use the logo, how much space around the logo, um, correct color iterations to use. I think that also to kind of wrap this up is it's not necessarily going to be the designer. Like you're not going to be the one who's going to be implementing the guidelines. I think that kind of falls under if it's a larger company, maybe they have a creative department, maybe they have a brand department, um, a CBO, something like that to kind of help enforce the brand guidelines for consistency, not to be like mean or anything. But if you see like your mom and pop restaurant using the logo in a way that doesn't necessarily keep the integrity of the design that you use. I think it's okay to shoot them an email and be like, hey, I noticed that the logo looks a little stretched out in your profile picture. I've created a graphic for you to replace that with if you like. You know, At the end of the day, the client's going to take the assets and they're going to do with them as they please. That's why we create work made for hire. That's why we don't own the actual rights to what we create for our clients. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah. And to jump off of that, I think that Creating the guidelines is actually super helpful for them because oftentimes they don't know what to do. I know it's like really intuitive for us as designers. If we get these assets, we would know exactly how to resize things in the proper way. But I personally like to create my brand guidelines to be extremely detailed because they want guidance. They want to be doing it right. They just have no idea what they're doing. So the stricter that I make them, the easier it is for them. So there's a balance to be had there. Like, yes, you do want to give them the flexibility to also like play with their brand and have fun with it. But especially for clients who are maybe a little less tech savvy or design savvy, the stricter, the better. Lindsay Blackmore asks, is it better for a personal brand to be fully authentic or is it better to play the role of some type of persona online? My humble opinion is that being fully authentic is the way to go. I think you want to be able to share your story in a way that really connects with people. I know that not every brand does this. Not every brand is fully authentic. But if you look at it, I think that the brands who are fully authentic are the ones that you actually want to purchase from, you want to work with. So if you're designing your studio and you're portraying something that you're not, and you're putting up this type of persona, it's going to repel the people who actually want to work with you for you and for your view on the world and how you have approached your own branding process and how it could then translate to how you approach their branding process. Because for me, when I work with clients, I want to dig into who are they and have their put their brain into my brain. And if they can't see that I've done that for myself, I don't think they would trust me at all. Samantha Stratton asks, I've wanted to start my own design slash marketing business for a while, but I've really struggled to start. I'd love to quit my nine to five and try to go at it full time, but I'm scared of what my friends and family will think. 
None of them have a creative job or have ever started their own company. So how do I explain what I want to do to people who have more traditional views of work? And how do I push past not getting the support I'm looking for if they don't get it? Samantha, thank you for asking this question. Um, I feel really personally related to this question because when I was graduating journalism school, all of my peers were going and getting jobs at like big news agencies like the New York Times, or they were going and reporting in like smaller companies. But not a lot of people were thinking about going off and starting their own company or anything like that. Um, even when I was working my corporate jobs in New York City, I was part of magazines and I was part of the design team. And I remember telling my coworkers, I'm going to quit my job and move to Southern Alabama because I'm getting married to my high school sweetheart and he's in the army. And I literally remember one of my coworkers telling me that she thought I was making a mistake and that I wasn't ever going to, you know, I mean, she was insinuating that my career was going to die and that I wouldn't have the same opportunities in Alabama as I would in New York City. And to a certain extent, like that made sense. There were not a lot of magazine design jobs in rural Alabama. But I think the answer to this question of, you know, friends and family not understanding what you do, you can do your best to explain to them, like, hey, this is a legitimate field of work. There are people out there who are doing this full-time, supporting their families as breadwinners, traveling the world. They're able to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. And I know deep down that this is what I want to do and I can do this. You can say that. You can say whatever you want to say. But at the end of the day, like people are going to believe what they're going to believe. And if they trust you and if they love you, then my hope is that they would support you. But I think being able to just believe in yourself and to know that this is something that you want, I think that's the most important part rather than um, needing everyone around you to fully buy in or understand what it is you do. Because I don't think there's anyone out there who every single person in their family like completely supports them and knows exactly what's going on. It's not to say that like, it's not important to have the support of the people around you because I know that's so important, especially a spouse or your parents. But I just want to encourage you that, you know, I've had that experience before where people have doubted me. People have straight up told me not to do it. I did it anyways. I'm so glad that I listened to my intuition. But, you know, if if you've had a, a sit-down conversation with someone and you've explained everything and they still don't understand or they don't support you, look for community elsewhere. Find the support that you need through our Facebook group. Find um, a group coaching program. Find a YouTube channel and join their Patreon and join that community. There are people out there who are so excited to support you and to follow you along in your journey and to answer your questions and to be there for you and to show you that this is possible. So if the people around you are really not understanding or not supportive, then you have my sympathy. I'm going to give you a big hug, but know that there are people out there who do want to provide that support to you. Esther, do you have anything else you want to say here? Yeah, I just like want to give you a hug because I know it's hard. I know. It's, it's hard when people don't fully understand. So hard. I know like for me, my family does support me and they love me, but they also don't really understand what I do. So they're just like, great, uh, you make logos. And I'm like, well, it's actually a lot more than that. But I think at the end of the day, kind of jumping off of what Jen said, it's looking for the community, looking for the support where you are going to feel lifted up and 
if you have questions, you can ask people who are in the same boat as you, because I know family is not going to understand. I don't ask my family for business advice. They love me and they support me, but they don't get it either. So I know it's just hard. And I just want you to know that like, we are here with you and almost probably every listener also is kind of in the similar boat of we're trying to figure out this entrepreneurship thing or trying to figure out this creative line of work. And we take little steps and we just keep moving forward. And there's not really anything you can do to like persuade family members or friends except excelling. Yeah, exactly. I think every listener has had someone doubt them to their face or worse, you know, tell them bad things about how they shouldn't try. Or I I mean, I started out doing Etsy and I remember specifically a person from my past um, told me that I would never make any money on Etsy and that it was really hard to like even try. And I ended up paying my rent one month with the amount of money that I was making from Etsy. So it wasn't like a a full-time like... Salary, but I remember I made $800 one month and that's what our rent was. And I paid it. I was like, okay, they didn't know what they were talking about, you know? So, yeah. I also remember like when I first started, a family member asking me, So, can you explain what you do? And then I did. And they're like, Well, it's good. It's a good thing that your husband still has a job because then you don't have to worry about money. And I was like, no. I basically just didn't say anything more because it wasn't worth the energy, yeah. but I'm like I actually make the same amount as him. Like he it's not I know. that he it's, makes more money than ugh. me, but in a traditional cuz he does work in a traditional line of work, you're like, "Oh, that's like you kind of have the status or the support behind it because it's normal and people get it." But yeah, mm-hmm. that to me was like, "Ugh, I can't even I don't even want to argue with you." I like, I want to throw up. That's just so, I'm so sorry someone said that to you. Like I, this is my hot take on where the the world, the future of work is going. Little tangent. I think the 40 hour work week is dying. I think full-time in office jobs that are not related to like the medical field or something where you like need to be in person. I feel like that's going out the window. COVID proved that what we do, like working from home all the time, reduced work hours, like a lot of companies now are giving flexible work time, optional office time. Like I think this idea of this quote unquote traditional, stable quote unquote job that like, I mean, COVID proved that everyone who thought they had a stable job, so many people lost their job. My best friend got let go in March of 2020, right after like lockdown started. They didn't even wait. They just fired her. You know, like, that's not stable to me, you know? Like I feel almost more stable now that like I know that like I have these marketable skills and like even if like one-to-one client work like slows down or whatever, I know that I'm going to be able to have some skills that I'm going to be able to go and you know, work for an agency or whatever. Like I feel really really good about that. So anyways, that's my soapbox about the future of work. Um hit me with your hot takes about that if you agree or yeah. disagree. I know that's kind of controversial, but <laughs> But Samantha, we're here for you. Yes. <laughs> Hugs. Hugs. Taylor Marie asks, what does the contract slash onboarding process look like? Okay. So for me, when I have a client who has given the green light, we're going to work on your project. 
I send a contract and invoice at the same time. So they'll sign the contract and then they submit their 50% deposit or whatever we've agreed on. Usually I do 50%, but sometimes it changes based on what they can do. So sometimes it's 25. From there, once that has all been signed on and approved, I send them an onboarding Notion link. And within that, it gives them a couple of things to do. So I have them start a Loom free account so that they can provide some video feedback. I have them fill out a branding questionnaire, which we use when we go into our kickoff call and we do our strategy meeting. And then I have them start to compile a list of brands that they love, brands that they don't love, kind of just, and that goes within the branding questionnaire of just pulling all of their content together. Now, if I'm doing a different project where maybe it's like a website in a day or an intensive day, I have a more detailed list of things that I need them to get together. So maybe it's all of their copy, all of their photos, all of their passwords, things that I need. And again, that's all through, I collect that all through Notion just because I found that's the easiest way to do so many different types of sites together. And from then I have a kickoff call with them whenever it's the first week of their project. And I walk them through everything of how the project's going to go, the order of our timeline, kind of my deliverables and how to contact me. Just give them really the basics of, if you think about like a college course, like the syllabus, that's kind of what it is. Like we go through syllabus day. We make sure you understand how this is going to go and they can ask questions and you answer them so that it all will go smoothly from there. Do you do anything else, Jen? I love that you have them sign up for a free Loom account. I literally never thought about that, but that is so smart so that they can talk through things that are little complicated um, and send you Loom videos. Because I love sending my clients Loom videos and I've never had a client send one back. So I definitely want to do that. I have a question for you. Do you do the kickoff call separate from like the brand strategy workshop? Like, do you have the questionnaire due like before like the day of or like, how does that work? I do the kickoff and the strategy together. So we just split up the time and I do have them fill out the brand questionnaire beforehand. So I always say like in that kickoff or in the email that I send them when I send them all of this information, I say like, here's your brand strategy questionnaire. We're going to go over it. So fill it out to the best of your ability. But if you have questions, come with them because we'll talk through them. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Okay. So this is our last inbox question. You know, we've had so many different ones, but this is the last one. Caitlin Neust asks, How do you handle photography needs when you're working for a small business or startup and need to use stock photography? If you need imagery for a specific industry, but if you need to purchase it, what do you do? This is a great question because sometimes you don't have a lot of options. If you're working with a really, really niche industry, I've seen a lot of stock photography sites pop up that are specific to those industries. One of them being wellnessstockshop.com. They provide wellness-related stock photography for all different types of wellness. There's like teas and herbs and crystals and stuff like that. And those are pretty low cost, like less than $50 each. And I know that they have a membership as well. So that's one option. You could look into you know, whatever industry it is to see if there are stock photos related to that industry. If you can't find anything and the client definitely does not have a budget to do a photo shoot, 
you can check flickr.com. They have a Creative Commons filter that you can use. Make sure to look for the little CC logo. You can also use Google Images to look for Creative Commons licensed images. That means that they are free to use for personal or professional use. That's probably like last case scenario. Make sure everything that is licensed CC because you can't obviously just pull images from the web um, without having to pay and you don't want to get your client or you in a weird situation. The last thing that I'll say is unsplash.com is a great free high quality stock photography site that I've used in the past. And you can search for very specific things on Unsplash. And sometimes there are great specific photos in series, which are wonderful because it makes it look like it came from the same shoe, which it did. Other than that, Stocksy is a paid stock photography site that I love um, for more premium images. They do tend to be on the more pricey side. Typically, Stocksy photos I've seen are over $100 each. So that might not be in the budget for you or your client. But there's ways to kind of finagle it. And then the last thing is that like, if you're doing like a website for a small business, you can design a website that is not very photo heavy, that instead relies on graphic elements or typography to reduce the instances of really big, you know, banner images or things like that. Maybe you just have like a little photo of the person that you're designing the business for on the about page and the rest of the the website is more typographic or um, uses graphic elements instead of photography. Another thing that I want to say is if you have a client who needs photography, make sure that you run it by them and make sure that they have some sort of budget for it because it should never fall onto you as a designer to pay for any of the stock images. If they need photography, they need to have a budget, especially if you can't find anything on any of the free sites because that is their project and they're going to want to and need to have the license for themselves in the future. Yes. So well said. Awesome. Okay, we're we're done. Like we went through everything and we actually did it in pretty good time. I'm proud of us. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you guys so much for all of these juicy questions. I know we have so many more, so we'll have to do another inbox question episode probably soon. And yeah, yeah, we love your questions. If you have more, feel free to ask them in the Facebook group or send us a DM or anything. And we'd love to chat more with you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And Happy end to season five. We did our little intro at the beginning with all of our thank yous and everything, but just one last thank you to all of you listeners. We couldn't do this without you. We wouldn't do this without you. Um, you guys are, are why we show up every week and um, it means the world to to us that you're listening to our voices right now. It's still a really wild concept even after all these years. Yeah. And also another thank you to John from Wayfair Recording, our producer. He has been amazing throughout the season and we're going to continue with him because he's just the best for editing out all of our blunders and the things that we say that are silly and the ums and all of that. So he's the best. Oh, yes. John is amazing. All of our recordings are are riddled with, wait, wait, John, can you take that out? (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, we will be back next week with a rerun episode. We're pulling our favorites from the archives with some updates. So we will still be 
coming back um, for the next four weeks. But then season six is coming in hot right after that. Super excited to jump back into that with you guys. Um, And I hope you guys have a wonderful Tuesday. Yeah, we love you. Bye, everyone. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Subscribe wherever you're listening to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we'd be forever grateful if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts. We bet you've got designer friends who'd enjoy it too, so share it with them. If you'd like to submit an inbox question for us to answer on air, or you want to get in contact with us directly, email us at inbox at betterbranddesigner.com. Our Facebook community is one of the most positive, supportive, and fun groups we've ever been a part of. We'd love for you to join us. Search for Better the Brand Designer Podcast on Facebook. If you love these conversations between designer friends and would like to support us, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash betterpodcast. And visit us online at betterbranddesigner.com to learn more about our podcast and snag major discounts on our favorite resources. Special thanks to our producer, John, from Wayfair Recording Co. See you guys again next week.